You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Now we've got some housekeeping items to get through before we actually jump into Gonzalo Frasca's simulation versus narrative, which is the text that we intend to read for this episode. We've got three items. Maybe we shall just briefly address them. Number one, just a very brief shout out. I appeared on a different podcast. I smuggled my way in to <laughs> the School of Podcasting, which is actually one of my personal favorite podcasts, The School of Podcasting by Dave Jackson. And, uh, you know, he always does these questions of the month where you can then submit an audio recording and it might be played on the show. And I was very happy that mine was played on the show. It was on the, at the very end of an episode that is called Honestly, how long does it take to create an amazing podcast episode? <laughs> of course, I had to contribute. Yes, well, because we know all too well how long it how long it can take, and hopefully, they're amazing. I think so. And I hope they're amazing as well. You people out there are probably best to judge, but we definitely know that it takes long because this is something I found this so valuable to just get it out in the open how long it takes. And Dave Jackson asked. How long does it take from idea to publish? So not the social media marketing and stuff like that, but all the conceptualization, the research, the preparation. Because, yeah, depending on what kind of show you do, and this is the case for us as well, it's more than just sitting here and recording together. But there's prep work, there's pre-planning involved for every single episode, and so on, research. And then afterwards, you have a lot of post-production. You've got editing to do, mixing to do, and stuff like that. So I timed the work that I put into an episode, like an average episode, and as a spoiler, because it is also in the show on the School of Podcasting, I clocked in at roughly seven hours. Roughly seven hours for one episode. And this varies, though. There's some of our episodes that are pretty quick, that we can done relatively quickly, especially if they are mostly based on opinions and anecdotes. And then there are other episodes that require research. For example, the episode today, which is a reading circle where we go through an actual academic text, It also requires time to select stuff, to read stuff, to excerpt the texts and prepare them for the show. So, yeah, it sometimes takes a bit longer, sometimes a bit shorter, roughly seven hours, just so everyone has like an idea of how long it actually takes. I think there's a, there's a common idea that um, w with any kind of production, you know, oh, well, it, it took me an hour to listen to. It must have taken an hour to create. Well, not, not yeah. so much. <laughs> sometimes it not takes so a little much, longer. Uh, a little bit longer, but yeah, I, I think that it's very helpful also to make this transparent because there are many people who want to get into podcasting, who want to do what we basically do at the moment or want to do something that's even bigger than that or whatever. And it's good to be aware of the fact that you need to dedicate the time, especially if we do it on a weekly basis, you need to plan ahead and you need to be aware that you need to invest quite some time. If you want to know more about this, then we highly encourage you to listen to the episode, Honestly, How Long Does It Take to Create an Amazing Podcast Episode by Dave Jackson, The School of Podcasting. We'll put the link in the show notes. Now, the second item of housekeeping, we've got a brand new Studying Pixels Plus 
episode because you know, dear listeners, that this is a free and independent show and we rely entirely on your support. No advertisements, no other kind of weird stuff going on. You can support us if you like and in return, you get our gratitude, you get a beautiful I Am Studying Pixels sticker and you get monthly plus episodes. And for this month, what are we going to do, Dan? Do you want to tell people about? Yes, well, speaking of research and putting the time in, um, we're talking about basically the history of the ESRB and how they come up with their ratings, um, what, how they function, what they do. Um, I think we both learned a lot when we were looking into it, um, and it turned out very well. And I think if you're ever interested in a primer on how the games you play, at least in the United States, are rated, um, our latest plus episode is a great uh, kind of deep dive into all things ESRB. It was a super fun conversation. And it's the best thing about it is it's already online. So this means that if you are a Studying Pixels Plus member, then you already have it in your feed. You can just open up that podcast app, maybe scroll up a tiny bit and you'll find it right there. And if you're not a member yet, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus and sign up for $5 a month and you will get these delicious bonus episodes as well, including all of the back catalog. And number three is obviously what some people might probably have been waiting for because two weeks ago, I think, we announced that we are going to give away a PlayStation 5. Ooh. Woo! We did our very best, put all the money together, purchased a PlayStation 5 disc edition and an additional DualSense controller. It was bundled together, clocks in at 560 US dollars, and we want to give it away to one of our Studying Pixels Plus members in order to make their Christmas. And here is the winner. Drumroll, please. <laughs> <laughs> the PlayStation 5 goes to... James. The last name begins with a H. James from New York. We're not going to disclose any further information because we obviously protect people's privacy, so you can trust us with that. But congratulations, James, for your brand new PlayStation 5 and your additional DualSense controller. It's a black one. It's really amazing. You're going to have like a white DualSense controller and a black one. That's fantastic. Oh, very cool. Well, James, uh, a happy Christmas, happy holidays to you. Thank you so much for being a Studying, studying Pixels Plus member. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing all about the games that you play on your PS5. Yes, we're very much looking forward to it. We're going to reach out to you and confirm your shipping address. Uh, and then I hope, I hope, I know that some people listening to this at the moment might have just signed up for the PS5 uh, for our Studying Pixels Plus membership. But, you know, take the time since you've paid for December already anyway, you know, <laughs> take the time, go through those plus episodes and see whether you like it. And if you think it's worth supporting us, then you can definitely do so. And we would be very happy because this is the way that we make this show happen, that this is the reason why we are not broke. So thank you very much for that. And with that, it is time to dive into our main story today, which will be a reading of Gonzalo Frasca's simulation versus narrative. It's time to dive into some game studies. And maybe just for all of you out there who think, oh, I didn't know that this was a reading thing. Do I have to read in advance? 
Uh, no, you actually don't. That's the good thing about it. Like, you can. You definitely can read in advance and you can send us your questions and your comments and we can consider them. But if you haven't read this text, then you have absolutely nothing to worry about because we're going to go through in a way so that everyone can understand it. That's basically our mission. Yes, you didn't miss the homework assignment. You're right on time. Exactly. We're talking about Gonzalo Frasca. He was born in Uruguay. And he studied at the Center of Computer Games Research at the IT University of Copenhagen. And he was, I would say, um, we're taking a big leap here because from the last, in the last reading episode, we spoke about Roger Calois, who was mm. active in the 1960s, and he didn't talk about video games specifically. Well, obviously, because at the time, video games were not really a thing. Now with Frasca, we've got the first text that we read that specifically is about video games. And he himself was also a game developer, or I should say he is a game developer. Most notably, he developed this uh, series game or educational game or political game, you could say, called December 12th. This is a game in which you basically, it picks up on 9-11, uh, obviously. And in this game, you click on, so like depict people depicted as terrorists and then... Oh, I'm sorry. No, you click at people, at civilians, and then they turn into terrorists, basically. And it is oh. supposed to, via the logic of its gameplay, point out how the war against terror actually creates more terror. That's kind of the mm. a very simple interpretation of that video game. Well, it's, uh, it's an interesting one, especially considering what, what he goes into in this, uh, in this reading that we're doing. The idea of simulation and how real games can actually be. Yes, he's all about simulation and contrasting it with narrative. Um, he also, we have to consider this, writes at a point where the idea or the discipline of game studies is still very young. On page 221, he writes, quote, probably the most promising change comes from a new generation of researchers who grew up with computer games and now are bringing to this new field both their passion and expertise on this form of entertainment, end quote. Because yes, indeed, in the early stages of game studies, it was very common that people who would analyze video games would at the same time also be people who develop video games. This is at least the case for Frasca. It's also the case for Jesper Yule. We might encounter his work a little bit later on, but I think this was like a basic strand that developed. People who are into video games, who develop video games, and then take to academia and include their expertise with video games into an academic understanding of them. Well, and I think there's a natural through line with that too, right? I mean, that it's not like that's a crazy idea. You think of how film studies developed. It, it came from people who created film and from people who uh, loved film and engaged with it. So it's exciting that we're now in the era where the people who are talking about video games have actually played and experienced them. Yeah, that's a good thing that you point that out because I hadn't realized that exactly the same thing happened with film when mm. people such as Eisenstein, you know, oh, yeah. like the early Russian film scholars, they were people who made films and based on their technical and their practical expertise 
developed theoretical abstractions, such as a theory of montage, for example, because they knew exactly what they were doing and they were trying to pour it into a theoretical framework. And that was kind of like a, a point of departure for film studies. And it was very similar in the case of game studies. Is it is it a little too precious, Stefan, to say that um, <laughs> that that very well fits into what we're about to discuss today and the idea of, uh, hey, this is something that I have been doing. Allow me to explain it and simulate it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Allow me to simulate this for you. <laughs> because, yeah, we have to also consider that um, a basic point, that it's always important to understand a little bit of context at the time. When Frasca was writing, it was this infamous conflict between narratology and ludology that was developing at the time. And Frasca played a crucial part in this, I'm not going to call it a conflict anymore after this, in this, let's say, discourse or intellectual or academic disagreement. Because the problem at the time was, you know, video games, they just exist, they emerge. And how does academia approach a new phenomenon that exists? And one way to do this is obviously theorists and uh, scholars would turn to methods that they had already applied to other forms of culture, other forms of artistic expression, and apply them to video games too. And this would be a strand that thinks from a narratological perspective. So narratology, this would be the science of narrative stories, you could say. Mm. These were strongly inspired by literature studies and by film studies, and they were looking at games as stories, pretty much. Or you could even say, if you want to exaggerate a little bit, it kind of was a pervasive idea that games were better if they were more like stories or like films. And of course, I need to say, this is an exaggeration. This conflict as such, it never really took place. It was not a war where people actually hit each other on the head or like Wittgenstein running around with a fire poker, you know, <laughs> threatening people. It was more of, let's say, a disagreement that has since changed a lot. But we're going we're gonna to dive right into this debate because on the other hand, a strand developed, as we said already, coming from video game production of, and obviously also other forms of research that focus primarily on games, so-called ludologists or the the area of ludology which is the science and the understanding of games as games this would be johann husinger which is a paradigmatic case who basically claimed that all culture has its origins in games it also includes roger calois the person that we read last time we're going to put the link in the show notes to our last reading circle espen arseth and so on so people who look at games as games and to say that, okay, narrative and aesthetics, those things are cool, but they are kind of supervenient to the rule structures and gameplay. So rules, structures, the uh, gameplay itself, that's what really is the key to understanding video games. Gameplay is king, basically. Is it fair to say that this um, contention arose from the kind of the the idea of okay well what makes this medium different from the other media that we're looking at to compare it to right exactly. well of course there's there's narrative function in these games but they are games so shouldn't we be looking at that yes exactly it's kind of saying there if we look at games as stories then we're overlooking what is essentially important about them as games right and mm -hmm. then we should maybe right. rather analyze stories or rather analyze films 
And uh, this was kind of the idea at the time. And we can go through this in three steps that Frasca takes. The first is to contrast the ideas of simulation versus representation. The second step is the significance of the terms ludus and paedia to the idea of game authorship. And the third one is an inquiry into the idea of ludic ideology. So how do games express ideological arguments and positions via their gameplay? Not narrative, not aesthetics, but via their gameplay structure. These are the parts that Frasca addresses. And he begins with an elaboration on what ludology is, and he defines it, quote, Ludology can be defined as a discipline that studies games in general and video games in particular, end quote. Very straightforward. Yes. I think an important distinction to make when you're starting the academic discourse about video games, right? Because if there's... If you try to box it in too much, then it almost too much represents the other media that you're borrowing from. And so definitely, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this. It's a really interesting setup that Frasca does here, um, but an important one, because there is a big difference between a game and a film. There is, surely, yeah. I, I find it a little bit of a weird definition, I must say, because... Mm he basically defines ludology as I would define game studies, right? Oh, interesting. Because the thing is that, you know, later on, at, at the time when Frasca was writing, the discipline of game studies as such did not exist mm. or was just in the very early days of emerging, right? The first journals that were called just game studies and so on were just in the creation. And uh, nowadays we have a little bit of a nuanced perspective. Like usually with, I would say, game studies nowadays are is a discipline that obviously is defined by the object that it researches, which is mm. games in general, but yes, video games in particular, certainly. Also board games and other games, but mostly video games. However, it is also very much interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary, meaning that if you read a study, an academic text, and it deals primarily with a video game, then you have a good chance that you're looking at a game studies text. And this can be, it can be a psychological inquiry. It can be an investigation of video game reception. It can be a discussion of whether video games will make people violent. But it can also be things like that are, you know, very closely related to technology Everything that comes from the domain of arts and humanities, including literature studies and so on, uh, linguistics, it's a broad range of studies that are included in my understanding, at least, of the term game studies. And I find it weird that he basically posits that as ludology, which is, I would mm. say, a little bit of a narrow understanding. Well, I wonder how much of that comes from... Um this early on in the discourse, kind of needing a, a term to latch on to, one that separates it from just general academic study. And maybe it's a little it's a little clunky, but I think that at least for the purpose of this this reading that we're doing, did, would you find that it it accurately describes what he's about to get into with his ideas on how games should be defined as simulation and and things like this? Certainly. His Yeah. I think his definition of ludology is indicative of the idea that he has of the mm. significance of gameplay because he does admit 
quote, of course, we need a better understanding of the elements that games do share with stories, such as characters, settings, and events. Ludology does not disdain the dimension of video games, uh, this dimension of video games, but claims that they are not held together by a narrative structure, end quote. So narrative is important and it has its place, but it's not in the center of what basically ludology is concerned with. Right. The idea kind of, if, to put it another way, and correct me if I'm overstepping, but if you were to remove the narrative, then it would still be a game. There would still be something that you could look at that inherently ties everything together. Exactly. That is one of the core arguments that have often been posited at the time. If you try to figure out what the essence of something is, you strip it of every attribute that is seemingly not necessary and you think about it. Can we imagine a game that doesn't have any narrative? Probably, you know, it would still count as a game. But what if we take a narrative and uh, gameplay and then we strip away the gameplay, we strip away the rules, then suddenly mm. we're only left with narrative, then it wouldn't be a game anymore. And that is why, that, that's the reasoning, that's not my reasoning, but that's the argument. Right. That's why games are at heart gameplay and rule structure. And narrative and aesthetics are things that come on top that are basically there as well, but they're not integral to what <laughs> makes this medium a game. So for keen-eared listeners, I, I think that you may be thinking, well, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. This doesn't jive with my understanding of games, right? <laughs> and that's, I think, fair because that's the reaction that I had. And yet, hmm. I will say, I do think that it's important when you're establishing this this entire idea of okay well what is how do we study games right well you have to look at the game first and foremost i would say so i certainly understand where he's coming from although it definitely seems as though things have evolved in the in the years since he's put this out yeah things have evolved and there've also been even before frasca um very appealing ideas of understanding games as stories uh, mm. We're just reading his text first because that brings us, gives us a very good overview of how this kind of, of debate operated. Because he's, he also says in many ways, he says like these are things that need to be stated and observed now, but they might mm. change in the future. Such as he says that his approach is pretty formalistic for the time being. So it identifies, you know, formal structures that are relatively rigid in how they are conceptualized. But he says himself that this is only considered to be a stepping stone. We, When we look at this text from nowadays understanding of video games, then we can say it's kind of derivative of many nuances. <laughs> but at the time, it's like, it was like first steps into the direction of understanding the academic significance of video games. And certainly important ones. And I think that... Um it's it's refreshing to read uh, an academic article where that's the underlying kind of ethos, which is, I'm presenting this, however I understand it's imperfect. This is just a way that we have to look at it right now. Yeah, yeah. There should be more of such critical self-reflection in, in academia yeah. in general. And <laughs> then if we dive into, let's say, his first big proposition, and that is the opposition of simulation versus representation. So... Mm. First of all, he does never really clearly state what he understands as representation. I find that a little bit of a vague thing. He just never really explained what he means by that. But mm. I think 
he focuses not so much actually on representation, but more on narrative, I feel. And narrative, if we consider narrative a mode of representation, then this would mean the idea of organizing events into coherent stories. And this is something that he says appears omnipresent in our culture. Representation is like everywhere. Right. I think the the example that he gives, even though he doesn't fully give a definition, he uses, um, he says on page 224, a film about a plane landing is a narrative. An observer could interpret it in different ways, i.e. it's a normal landing or it's an emergency landing, but she cannot manipulate it and influence how the plane will land since film sequences are fixed and unalterable. That to me kind of shows, all right, this idea of representation is I'm witnessing something and I'm interpreting it because I understand the constituent parts, but I'm not manipulating or changing it, which would lean more into simulation. Exactly, yeah. And this is, I think this is a very apt comparison because the thing is that if you watch a film about a plane landing and you only look at the, let's say, the output, then, mm. uh, then of course, this is like, a, this might seem identical to the simulation of it. Right, like if you right. let's say whether you watch a let, maybe a com more contemporary example, whether you watch the film of a plane la plane landing, or you watch someone who plays the Microsoft Flight Simulator and does a landing, you as a for you as a viewer, this is a representational thing. But right. the difference is that in the film, the outcome cannot be influenced, whereas in the simulation, when you it's literally called the flight simulator, there is a person who actually manipulates that landing. So. The simulation focuses not so much on the output, but on the input and what happens in between input and output. Yes. I also find it super important to emphasize that when we say representation is omnipresent, or when he says representation is omnipresent, this does not only mean the media. Like, he, all, he argues in the direction of representation is, like, everywhere. And I, I thought of the example... When we think about how we organize our lives, how we structure our idea and our understanding of the self, then this is to a vast degree something that biography research points out. We organize our life as a story. Right. We see our own selves as kind of being part of a story, like we are the protagonist of our own lives. This is how far the idea of representation goes and that our understanding of our very selves is representational. Yes, the narrative we construct for ourselves, right? Looking back on past events, thinking about who we'd like to become. I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. We all think we're the main character in our own story. Yeah, we want to be the <laughs> hero of our own existence. That's right. <laughs> Whereas uh, simulation, he defines relatively clearly when he says, quote, to simulate is to model a source system through a different system, which maintains for somebody some of the behaviors of the original system. So the key term here is behavior. Simulation does not simply retain the generally audiovisual characteristics of the object, but it also includes a model of its behaviors, end quote. So instead of just it looks like an airplane. It does what an airplane does, which is landing. Okay, so this is a story and this is its aesthetics. But it also includes the behavior. I can, you know, change 
change the altitude of the airplane. I can change the uh, the acceleration, for example. I have to trigger certain things in order to hit the brakes and so on. So it behaves in the plane is the source system and the simulation of the plane is then the different system that tries to uh, to convey some of the behaviors of the original system. Yes, it's uh, not to be too cute, but it's similar to the real thing, right? That's the idea of a simulation. A simulation exactly is that the rules work the same way. Exactly, exactly. And uh, Frasca argues that we need to try and break out of this very representational understanding that we have towards the world and towards the media and especially towards video games if we want to understand them properly. He quotes Marku Eskelinen, also a very influential scholar, who said, and I love this quote, he said, Outside academic theory, people are usually excellent at making distinctions between <laughs> narrative, drama, and games. If I throw a ball at you, I don't expect you to drop it and wait until it starts telling stories, end quote. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it so funny when academics say that, um, you know, oh, this is certainly something that everyone intuits naturally, and here I am to codify it and formalize it. <laughs> <laughs> I think the quote is just fantastic. I had to yeah. imagine like someone getting thrown a ball and being like, hmm, I wonder what it's going to tell me today. <laughs> <laughs> and Braska basically makes the point with this of saying, quote, video games imply an enormous paradigm shift of our, for our culture because they represent the first complex simulational media for the masses, end quote. Because, yeah, of course, we had simulational systems before that as well. But video games are the first time, he argues, that these simulations are brought into the home, into the hands of people, right? And that's why we need to change our understanding of these things. I think to um, to go into how the average person may understand this, um, because I do think that this this distinction that's being that Frasca is making is something that we intuit even without even realizing it when we're playing a game. So take for example, when you're playing a game like Resident Evil, and uh, your character gets killed by a zombie. You don't say, oh, Leon died. You say, I died, right? Whereas in a, if you're recounting the events of a film, you would say, oh, that character died, and then this happened, right? So I do think that this is something that, as even though we've evolved the discourse past this, this is a really important distinction to make because this is how we talk about games when we're recounting what happened in them. Yeah, this is what indicates that there is a different relationship that we have between the protagonist of a film and the protagonist slash avatar of a video game because they mm. represent to a certain degree us, you know? And uh, right. the thing is actually, that's a good point to make because when I teach introductory classes on game studies at university and I read the term papers that students hand in, the thing that students often struggle the most is meaningfully analyzing gameplay mm. when it comes to, you know, analyzing stories and analyzing aesthetics, the story of a video game or how something is, you know, color coded or how the camera works in a game and so on, camera angles, lighting and such things. Right. These are things that 
most students, at least in the department where I teach, which is a department of media studies, are acquainted to because they have learned to study films and television. But when it comes to actually understanding not only what the gameplay is, not only in a descriptive way, but to analyze in a way that how the gameplay contributes to a meaning or how it can be meaningfully interpreted, that's often where people struggle. And that's why I think ludology is such an important thing. And the point that Frasca makes is an important one, as exaggerated as it might be in certain aspects. <laughs> because he definitely says, quote, My claim is that simulations can express messages in ways that narrative simply cannot, and vice versa, end quote. He illustrates this on the example of advertisement games, and we don't have to go into these examples here, but he basically makes the point of saying in an advertisement that you would see on TV or on a cinema screen, you see sort of a representation of that product. Whereas if you make an advert game, then you need to convey the idea of this product in a sort of behavioral structure that works with the simulation. Coming on with the next paragraph, he goes into game rhetoric. This is the question of, are simulations to be considered a form of speech? Because we know that over time, the understanding of speech has expanded mm. from the written speech to, you know, the, to the oral speech, to the speech of, let's say, visual expressions and cinematographic expressions. And now the question is, can speech also mean gameplay? Can gameplay really be speech? And according to Frasca, unsurprisingly so, yes, of course they, <laughs> of course they can. Because gameplay can employ a sort of rhetoric to make an ideological argument. This is something that we can go into more detail when we read Ian Bogost, because he develops mm. this idea further of what he calls procedural rhetoric. So we don't have to go further in this direction for now. But he points out some interesting differences in how, let's say, stories speak and how games speak. Could you, because this is, this is something that I had a bit of a hard time wrapping my head around, just because I couldn't put it into like a, I couldn't put it into an experience, which is usually how I do it, which may actually be what he's getting at now that I think about it. And yet, <laughs> I would like, could you maybe go into stuff on sort of, what does he mean by this? What, where, is he, where is he going with this idea that the behaviors you engage with in a, in a simulation can be considered speech or expression? I think the best example to give is his own game, December 12th. <laughs> We illustrated this beforehand, a game mm. where you click on civilians, which then turn into terrorists. And that way, the only thing you can do, obviously the terrorists cause more like, you know, victims of terrorism who are civilians, who you can then click on. And what you do is you increasingly spam the screen with terrorists and make the situation worse with every click. And I think this is what he means when he says gameplay and the engagement with the video game's rules can be a form of speech because it makes a point mm. in itself. And uh, this is not to say there is no narrative and uh, aesthetic layer, because obviously there is, right. but the point is driven home through the interaction with the system. So maybe a good example would be in um, 
sort of the the realization at the end of a game like Spec Ops the Line, or even maybe a a more common example is like in at the end of Bioshock, um, when the twist is sort of revealed that you've been you've been following these orders without thinking about it. And you have the rug pulled out from under you to say, look at how look at how quickly you accept direction and move into this sort of behavior of a, as Andrew Ryan would say, a slave, right? I think yeah. that that's a really good example of how the gameplay really shows this experience that you had. And it's making a point that maybe we take things for granted too often. Exactly. And the wonderful thing about Bioshock, except for that it's a good thing we can spoil because it's just so old that if anyone yeah. really would be, <laughs> you could have played it in the last like 15 years or something. Yeah, it's the pretty important. Is, yeah, the, the wonderful thing about it is that the point that they're making about that you are easy to be manipulated with this or hypnotized by this formula of like, would you kindly do this mm. and that, is that this point can only be made because of all the playful engagement and the gameplay that you had before. If you were to implement, if you were to theoretically make a film out of it, it wouldn't have the same kind of impact because it, it really relies on the video game rules and the way you engage with them. So, yeah, this is exactly what he means when he says that game rhetoric can make ideological arguments. Mm. You know, I, I I just got chills when you were explaining that just because the reason I I still think Bioshock is so fresh and interesting is that it's a, a, such a great example of that point where yeah. it, it, you could not make that point in a film. It wouldn't hit the same way. Exactly. You watch a Bioshock film, you're just disappointed because it's like, eh, okay, so he says this phrase and then he does everything. <laughs> Um, right. how interesting you know? all yeah. right then <laughs> but it plays with the idea that in a video game you get assigned objectives and then you do that without much mm. questioning of why you should do it and that's the thing these are the means that video games have to explore ideology within the framework of game rules and he contrasts this with narratives and he says quote Traditional storytelling normally deals with endings in a binary way, end quote. Because, yes, the thing is, if you have a story, then usually there are, there's like a good ending or a bad ending, with might, which might manifest in your head. And then the only question is basically what is going to be actualized. Is Frodo going to be able to throw that ring into the Mount Doom, I think is its name, right? Yep. Um, and is Harry Potter going to defeat Voldemort or not? These are like binary ways in which things can go. Where that's He says, quote, narrative authors or narr authors only have one shot in their gun, a fixed sequence of events, end quote. Maybe we need to just point out that he uses the term narr authors yes. to denote people who write narratives. And they have a fixed sequence of events that they create in their stories, and they usually have a binary ending that actualizes then when you read through it. However, on the other hand, quote, games are not isolated experiences. We recognize them as games because we know we can always start over, end quote. So unlike narratives, he says, simulations are not just like a sequence of events, but they incorporate behavioral rules. And these behavioral rules can be interacted with, they can be changed, and they can be, you know, there can be ways to try and manipulate these rules over and over and over with different results. 
I think of a game like Deathloop, um, which is a recent example, and I, I won't give any spoilers, but the the narrative, and I'm using air quotes to say narrative, of Deathloop is very fixed. There are certain things that, you know, at certain points, things will happen. Um, it's, it's spread out across a, a day in the world of the game. But the way that you get to those points are so vastly different. So... And there's fail states within those points, too. So it's not like they have to happen or must happen. So it's a perfect example of, it's not like reading a novel where you're on a linear path the entire time. There are things that can change at any point based on the rules of the game. Yeah. Deathloop is certainly an interesting example. And I would say a lot of open world RPGs are as well. Mm. Uh, game. These are usually games that we're going to get into that distinction in another reading between games of emergence and games of progression. By That's a distinction that Jesper Ewell opened up. But basically, just to, to illustrate the idea, within such games like open world games or let's say Red Dead Redemption, uh, there's a lot of means of interaction, a lot of things that you can do, but you do not have to do them. However, I think one crucial thing that we need to remark on is that Frasca might at this point overst be overstating the flexibility of games because there are a lot of games. <laughs> well, and I think I, I came up with Deathloop as an example, but even within that example, um, I think that, again, people who play games, they'll say, I see where you're coming from with this uh, this explanation that there's a wide variety of choices and options but because there are still narrative fixtures i feel as if i'm being railroaded to those things no matter what i do yeah and that's a that's an important contention to make here with frosca i think i think so too and that is already uh, relatively lenient because there are a lot of games if you think of the traditional point and click adventure Mm. that are just literally like a linear path that you need to just follow and you need to just do the right puzzles, you need to combine the right items with the right things and basically do some guesswork of what the developer had in mind in order then to, in a linear fashion, progress towards its ending. And a lot mm. of games work like that. A lot of games are just linear and you play through them once and then they happen uh, over and over again. You can't have, uh, let's say, you can't fundamentally change the ending of, let's say, Uncharted, mm. uh, that's just what it is. You know, you can jump right. to the left first or to the right first in a fight or use this weapon or that weapon, but basically you're on rails. And I think this is something that we must point out. Like a lot, there are some games, chess, for example, is one of them. Chess, you never know what's going to happen. It might always be different. There's a limited number of possibilities, but they are so vast <laughs> <laughs> that you can't foresee them. Someone's going to win, though. <laughs> someone, someone's going to win, certainly. And when you play Monkey Island, uh, then if you, unless you stop playing that game, you'll probably, you know, defeat LeChuck in some way, you know, right. or slight yeah. his plan. It's kind of, you know, to, and this this is a conversation perhaps for another uh, for another reading series, but I do think it's kind of what Bioshock Infinite was responding to in a lot of ways, where. I, without go, I, it's a little bit younger than the first Bioshock, so I won't spoil it. But the idea is that yes, there are differences, but ultimately there are these fixed points that you feel kind of trapped by. Yeah, 
Frasca emphasizes just um, the opposite part, let's say, you know, the more, well, the simulation-based games. There's a good reason why games, you know, there's there are chess simulators, there are sports mm. simulators. Um, even an open world like Skyrim is considered to be a simulational open world because mm. everything exists and behaves in accordance to the rules that are in place. And you can, um, that's just an example, you can, there is a rule in Skyrim that um, when you take something out of a store, then it will be reported as thiev thievery if another NPC sees you. However, mm. there's also the rule that objects can block NPCs' gaze, the view, their, their viewpoint. So if you take a bucket and put it over an NPC's head, then their view is restricted and you can take whatever you want take the bucket off afterwards and say, like, have a nice day. You know, have a good empty. one. <laughs> have a good one with like a gigantic bag of produce and yeah. behind him everything's empty. <laughs> 80 <laughs> <But> cheese wheels. <laughs> exactly. That is that is the thing. That's the way in which Skyrim is uh, more simulational. So maybe we can just mm. assume for the time being there are some games who are more relying on the representational layer and some games that more rely on the simulational layer. And that's what he primarily is talking about when he says, quote, Simulations are laboratories for experimentation, where user action is not only allowed, but also required, end quote. He compares this to the idea of the forum theater, which is something mm. that I personally find overwhelming when you go to a theater... <laughs> You know, and they have this idea that, that this annoying idea that when you go to the theater, you have to be on stage. It's and you, they, yeah. oh, they, Then they yell at you, then they like, climb in the audience and you think like, Jesus, I should have gone to yeah. the cinema. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Overwhelming is the polite way to describe forum theater. <laughs> <laughs> so in forum theater, the idea is that you create a situation uh, on the stage and then people from the audience can slip into the actor's shoes, they basically take their place and then they play out different ways to respond to the situation and the other actors will behave in accordance to what they do. This is basically, he draws an equivalence to this kind of forum theater to point out how the how players engage in a simulational system. The, um, the title of this section is actually Aristotle on the holodeck, yeah. which is a reference to Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, this idea of the holodeck where you are literally, you're wearing costumes of someone like Sherlock Holmes or like an old gumshoe detective and you're playing out these scenarios as the the simulated character. So I, I, I was reading this title and I just thought, I know exactly what he's talking about, being a big Star Trek nerd. <laughs> well, it's, it might be surprising, but that title is even more charged because Aristotle mm. on the holodeck is also a reference to Hamlet on the Holodeck, which is a book oh, yes. by Game Studies scholar Janet Murray, uh, mm. which was released, I think, in the mid-90s. And uh, I think that Frasca basically points out his alternative to not emphasize narrative, which, you know, which was intended by the idea of Hamlet, but Aristotle, Aristotle who, you know, in the idea of virtue ethics was very much leaning towards, you know, actively practicing uh, virtue and being virtuous in order to grow as a person. So, wow, there's so much within <laughs> just, so the heading, much. <laughs> just the heading, just the headline. And yep. yeah, he basically says, so the difference is then that in narrow authors, they 
draw clear lines between cause and effect. They write a single story from beginning to end that you can engage with. Whereas sim authors, as he calls basically, this is basically just game developers for the most part, mm -hmm. or people who are significantly involved in creating that game, they need to give up that kind of control because they craft a simulational framework in which players can then operate and just basically do their thing. That's their task. And he draws a distinction that we have already heard before, because if you've been around for the Johan Heusinger, excuse me, for the Roger Calois reading circle, then you know the distinction between ludus and paedia, which mm -hmm. could be translated to the distinction between play and game. Because the thing is, the distinction is that paedia is basically the free form of play. Let's say when a child imitates an adult, Whereas ludus is a form of more rule-oriented play where you have such as, you know, when you play soccer, you've got like fixed rules on how that game works. And uh, just as a tiny addendum, Frasca points out that Calois was not quite right when he said that Paedia does not have rules because mm. Paedia does have rules. If a child, and this is a discussion I've had in a seminar recently, if a child plays uh, to, you know, be a bakery salesperson and like imitates and says like, oh, here's the bread or like that, then it's, it's obviously a form of free play, but there are rules because the child plays to be that salesperson or the bakery staff and not to be a soldier or a priest or a doctor. Yes. Right. Because if they did that, they would be enacting a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be a little bit beyond their age, probably. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> so primary distinction, if we want to keep it very simple, is that in the case of Paedia, there's usually no winning or losing. You just play mm. and you're relatively free in the way to play and the rules are at least not fixed. There's no rule book that comes with Paedia, whereas Ludus always relies on determining a winner or a loser. And that is why Ludus is also pretty frequently employed when it's about central antagonistic narratives, when we're talking about laying out a conflict. Uh, chess is, again, an excellent example, or Call of Duty, right? Where you mm. have, like, good against evil, and you have a ludic structure, a ludus structure, where there is going to be a winner at the end. It's a very black and white idea that's inscribed within ludus, he argues. Whereas in Paedia, we have a lot more freedom. He says, quote, Only Paedia, with its fuzzier logic and its scope beyond winners and losers, can provide an environment for games to grow in their scope and artistry. End quote. It's an interesting, again, we, we kind of couch this whole discussion in Frasca saying, this is just a jumping off point. <laughs> this is, you know, this is not a, the end all be all for, for video games. But I think it, it does logically follow that if you're saying that the study of, of the gameplay, right, is the, is the distinction between this and other media, then only in that very discrete system would you be able to expand how games can function and how they can grow in artistry or, as he says, scope in artistry, right? And I think that there's obviously some contention there, but it's an interesting way to look at the history of games to see how just this, the simul simulative portion, as he's describing, has evolved throughout the years. It is, yeah. And it's also interesting that he basically puts the 
idea that Kawa has origin, originally conceptualized of Ludus and Paedia on its head, because yeah. or, or from its head on its feet, who knows? Uh, because you <laughs> might remember, and you dear listeners out there as well, that when we looked at Roger Kawa, we pointed out that Kawa basically has the idea... Paedia is sort of there originally, and Ludus is the more developed, more, quote, civilized form of play. Whereas Frasca basically says the opposite. He says Ludus is pretty much a restricted form of play that always needs to rely on winners and losers, on black and white, on clear conflict. Whereas Paedia is more like an open playing field in which we can experiment, and which players can also experiment and experience truly what simulation is. And I, I think uh, what what I'm thinking of, because um, I'm, I'm looking as as we're recording this, I'm looking at my Nintendo Switch box that's in this recording oh. closet of mine, uh-huh. and I'm thinking I'm thinking of. Um, he mentions Super Mario, and Super Mario is is sort of put together in this black and white. You know, you have to save the princess. That's the win state of the game, right? There's there's not really a way to not do that and complete the game, but I think of a game like. Super Mario Odyssey, which is couched in that idea, and it plays with it a little bit, but I don't think anybody is playing Super Mario Odyssey with the intent to save Princess Peach. I think yeah. I think it's fair to say that people play Super Mario Odyssey because it's a very fun simulation of all these different things you can do with Mario and his hat. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's sitting there thinking oh my God, I wonder whether Mario's going to make it to save the princess, you know? And it's like, the yeah. princess is in another castle. Oh no! <laughs> what, what am I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do, Mario? Can you make it? <laughs> but actually, yeah, you're very much right. And I think it also points to the fact that Paedia, games that more strongly rely on Paedia, these days at least, seem to have a strong appeal when it comes to popularity. If we think of mm. such things, you know, Mario Odyssey was a very popular game, or is still a very popular game. Zelda Breath of the Wild strongly sure. relies on Paedia, on having an open simulational word, world. Whether you defeat, you know, Calamity Ganon or not, that's like, you completely forget about the existence of Calamity Ganon throughout broad stretches of the game. To the point where the narrative of the game is, he already won, so maybe you can maybe you can fix it but it's almost secondary to running around hyrule and enjoying like cooking apples and stuff like that yes exactly exactly just see yeah. what you can throw together and what kind of dishes you can make and all the things you can collect and see whether you can accelerate that boulder so you can stand on top of it and <laughs> catapult yourself across the entire world all yeah. of these things and i think we are actually at the moment in a time where paedia is increasingly valued and that yes. also, uh, you know, whenever we encounter games that are fairly linear within their story, and I'm thinking, I'm looking in the direction of The Last of Us, part one and two, we sure. often hear that those people that did really not like it often complain that it was too restrictive, that they would have liked to have more choices, and that they felt like the story was forcing them in a certain direction. So it seems that this exploration of Paedia is still... Uh, you know, just in its infancy, and maybe even in a, maybe we're ex- even experiencing like a new surge of Paedia video games. I think so. Maybe it's um, it's uh, it's fair to say that technology seem technology and the the creative development behind video games, especially like Breath of the Wild or Super Mario Odyssey, but also things like you know GTA Five and these games that 
really do have a focus on the paideia aspect. I think it's fair to say that um, the narrative, more traditional narrative in video games was a way to kind of couch the paideia gameplay. And that was that was fun, but it was also, you're doing it in service of the narrative. Now we're at a point where the paideia maybe is, is overtaking the narrative slightly, but it also enhancing it to the point where when I think about talking to you, Stefan, about how I defeated Calamity Ganon, I feel like it really is my experience that I yeah. had, you know, whereas with Ocarina of Time, you and I did the same things, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it, 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 exactly. And the thing is that it comes as no surprise because if you think back to that sentence that the idea vaguely mischaracterized here uh, of saying a narratologist would say that games are better if they are more like films. This is mm. something that a lot of people would disagree with, even though I'm not sure whether anyone has ever said that, honestly, except for David Cage, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, thing, the thing is actually that, yes, um, we see a lot of emphasis on cinematographic aspects. We've seen that a lot in the last, let's say, 10 years. Video games have developed largely in the domain to which they become similar to films. If you think of exactly such examples like, you know, what Naughty Dog does with Uncharted and uh, The Last of Us, Tomb Raider, these things have all become more cinematic in their qualities. Mm -hmm. But uh, it only slowly, the games that go into the direction of Paedia that are more simulational develop. And they develop in much more, let's say, incremental degrees. So. Yes. This is something that we're currently actually in the middle of and where we've now found that Frasca actually with his strong emphasis on paedia and simulation can be very helpful in understanding this kind of dynamic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now let's go through the last aspect of theoretical framework that he implements here because he says we must differentiate between four levels of ideology within games and we've mentioned almost all of them by now. But uh, just to make it once more as an explicit point at the end of this reading, he differentiates between first, the representational layer of a simulation. So yes, that representation is still in there. Because the thing is that if you play a Counter-Strike game, you have a representational layer that puts terrorists against counter-terrorists. And if you were to swap out the skins of the people that are participating, or the characters in the game, then it would have a completely different meaning. So the representational layer is still important. The second point are manipulation rules. That's what he says. Those are the kinds of rules that exist, and whether like and they are, they give you sort of um, leeway when it comes on what to do or what not to do. They are constraints such as, for example, um, when you play soccer, then you cannot pick up the ball, right? Um, they are they determine what is possible in a game um, without determining what the goal of the game is. For example, also, I found this, these are like two interesting examples, I guess. One is The Sims, homosexuality in The Sims. Because, mm. as he says, in The Sims, it's not part of the goal to be, you know, homosexual or heterosexual or any such thing. But the fact that you can be homosexual without having it have any kind of particular negative consequences, that is a simulational, um, let's say, argument in favor of, you know, diversity. 
Yes. Just like when you play a strategy game and it does not display any form of slavery, a historical strategy game, even though it should historically do this, uh, then this can also be, you know, an ideological point that basically ignores the fact that slavery had a significant part in building this empire that you are currently building there, completely ignoring it. This is a good example of the rhetoric that we were talking about before, right? This is the the absence or the implication of these boundaries or rules that are in a game can make the the point that you know this this uh, you know civilization game is not endorsing slavery, even though it existed historically. Or The Sims finds no difference between heterosexuality and homosexuality, you know, as should we all, right? So I think that that's a a perfect example of um, going back to the December 12th game, how rhetoric can be used through these rules that he's discussing. Exactly, yeah. So these are representational layer and the manipulation rules. And then he's got the goal rules. This is really what we have discussed under the term of ludus. Goal rules determine what it takes to win the game, such as Super Mario rescuing Princess Peach. And the goal rules are also, he frames it a little bit like, a functionalist form of morality. So this means, mm. when you say like a functionalist form of morality, then then it means this is not about thinking about what's right or wrong, but basically the game gives you a goal, do this, and then it frames this as morally right. This is where the Bioshock twist comes in by giving you certain goals and saying this is what's right, and then pulling the rug from under you and saying like, lol, <laughs> yeah. this was actually or not the right thing. Keeping with the Super Mario theme, um, uh, John Blow's Braid, right? Yeah. The, <laughs> this You just go into a game assuming a morality only to have it flipped from you at the end because of the way that the rules are set up. Your objective is this, therefore you must be the good guy. Not always. Exactly. You try to rescue the princess and then I think, uh, this because this is also a bit older, uh, I think you turn out to be like a stalker or something or the princess doesn't is running from you or something like that, uh, right? At the very least, a possessive person, yeah. Yeah, a particularly certainly. possessive person. So this is a form in which uh, goal rules can be also used in order to make an ideological point. And the fourth part, those are meta rules. This is when players are themselves allowed to change the game rules, something that, you know, children on the schoolyard do all the time, and <laughs> something that is also increasingly common when you use such things like editors or mods in order to create your own game sessions game shark game shark yeah <laughs> <laughs> so these are the four levels of ideology that frasca identifies the representational layer manipulation rules goal rules and meta rules and he says to round things off and to maybe give a it's a very interesting point that he makes at the very end because he says uh, simulation is quote an alternative not a replacement to narrative, end quote. So basically, he tries to harmonize things a little bit. Like, hey, to yeah. all of you people who analyze games as stories, we're not trying to take this away from you. Uh, it's an alternative perspective. But then he does go on and say at the very end, quote, simulation is the form of the future. It does not deal with what happened or is happening, but with what may happen. Unlike narrative and drama, its essence lays on a basic assumption. Change is possible. End quote. I think uh, this was one of our readings 
that we've done where I found myself um, sl- <laughs> slowly being charmed by his arguments a little bit. <laughs> where I think I came in hot because I'm I'm very much about you know I love the the narrative power of video games, but I think he does a really great job of explaining how. Um, it's important to first deconstruct a game and look at it from this simulation perspective first, because that's what makes a game. And so once you do that, I think you get to engage with games like Breath of the Wild in a really exciting way, because you see what he's talking about here mingling so well with the narrative that Zelda tells. Exactly. I also agree with you in that I often look at the representational level of games, but uh, still, as much as I find some of his points, um, well, I would say almost outdated. Can Well, I mean, they are outdated because, but they are only outdated because these points actually raised a discussion and initiated a development in thinking about video games that nowadays allows us to acknowledge gameplay as a central part in constructing a game's meaning. Um, and not ignore it or see it as kind of like an inferior thing. It I th- sometimes it takes this arguing that is a little bit, a little bit over the top, I would say, mm. or a little bit more confrontational, in order to point out that hey, gameplay is a significant part of a video game's meaning. And if we want to understand games, even if we want to understand games as stories, then we better consider the gameplay at least as well as an important part mm. in what kind of story is told. And that is how things have been synthesized eventually. I hope we have not misrepresented any of the points of Gonzalo Frasca. If not, then I'm certain he'll shoot us an email and be like, hey, guys, <laughs> this is actually not what I, <laughs> what I try to say. But That'd hey, be cool this, if he did. <laughs> this is a perspective, you know, on you know the early stages of video game studies. We'll have lots more perspectives to explore. Uh, and then we'll find over time how video game studies comes together as a discipline that studies games from all sorts of angles. At least that is my perception of the field at this very moment. I hope that this was educational for all of you out there and that you enjoyed this. It was for me. (laughs) I'm glad (laughs) to hear that. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. And uh, if you have any remarks, if you have any questions about this text by Gonzalo Frasca, Simulation versus Narrative, then feel free to let us know on social media or on uh, uh, via email podcast at studyingpixels.com and while you do that and ponder the significance of simulation we're going to move ahead and do some side questing as you know in our side quests we scavenge the internet for interesting stories and bring our own video game impressions to the table and we've got three side quests prepared for you today number one how will the game awards respond to the situation at Activision Blizzard. Now, the Game Awards are coming up on December 9th. So this is next week already. Wow, it's come around so quickly. And in light of the events at Activision Blizzard, the question arises how they will respond, especially since the Game Awards are represented by Geoff Keighley. Obviously, the internet and the entire video game community, or most of the game community, wants to know what his stance is and what kind of stance the Game Awards are going to take. Because, brief summary, we have reported on all of these matters. There have been years of sexual harassment and other forms of harassment. There are pay disparities, an all-round culture of sexism 
There have been worker strikes and there are several ongoing lawsuits, all at Activision Blizzard. So this is a big thing. And I stumbled upon a Kotaku article that caused some Twitter outrage. Not that it's difficult to cause Twitter outrage, but this one certainly did. It was titled, The Game Awards Won't Take Sides on Activision Fallout to Focus on Reveals, end quote. This was written by Ethan Gatch, and we've linked everything, obviously, in our side quests in the show notes of this episode. And this article refers to an interview with Geoff Keighley, which she gave to the Washington Post, talking about the Game Awards and what's coming up. And this article emphasizes not taking sides. Like, the Game Awards are not taking sides. And I found that a bit odd. I was, like, my first intuition was wondering, are yeah. there really two sides? Is this really a thing where you basically choose a side? So I looked into the article and into the original interview. The original interview is also part of this article. It's included there. It's quoted there. And it says, quote, Keeley said he is thinking about how to navigate the event's involvement with Activision Blizzard, end quote. And further, quote, we want to support employees and developers, said Keeley, who added he supported people coming forward with their stories but also didn't want to diminish developers' opportunities to spotlight their games. Quote, we have to think very carefully about how to proceed here. End quote. He also noted, by the way, that neither Diablo 4 nor Overwatch 2, which are some of the most anticipated games by Activision Blizzard, and which, by the way, also have been delayed because of these, you know, tremendous this tremendous fallout at the company would not be shown at the games games awards the game awards this year so clearly it's a tough situation much like with boycotts would it be and this is the question would it be an act of support to categorically exclude activision blizzard games from the game awards because the thing is that the involvement actually runs a bit deeper rob kostich is a president of Activision, and he is also in the so-called advisory board of the Game Awards, alongside many other people. Um, we're going to link the overview of who's in this advisory board in the show notes as well. So this is kind of a tough thing, and Keeley says he wants to, you know, ponder how to navigate this issue. And I think if I might just briefly give, you know, just my first intuitive take on the matter, it was that a proper statement from the Game Awards regarding the case of Activision Blizzard would certainly be valuable. After all, we've seen Nintendo, Sony, and Xbox, all of these big companies clearly responding by saying they will reevaluate their relationship with Activision Blizzard. We reported this as well. To ignore this matter would be, I would say, uh, would stand in opposition to the actual goal of the Game Awards because the Game Awards always emphasize like they want to celebrate the industry, they want to celebrate video games, and you can't really do that if you are not decisively taking a stand against harassment, oppression, and exploitation of those that make these games. That would just me be cynical. At the same time, yeah. I feel a little bit disgruntled by the fact that this Kotaku article by talking about taking sides, to, in my interpretation, it misrepresents what Geoff Keighley actually said because he didn't say, you know, he's not taking sides or something, but rather what he alluded to, that's what I understand it, is that 
will it really help those developers if we do not show any Activision Blizzard games? That's at least what my interpretation is of the situation right now. I think I think I agree with that interpretation because um, Jeff Keighley strikes me as someone who uh, <laughs> he's he's an interesting guy, and I think he um, he understands more than maybe the internet gives him credit for. I guess, um, and I think that knowing the people that he knows and understanding the kind of inner workings of the industry as he probably does. I do think that that's a big decision for him to make because on the one hand, of course, you don't want to tacitly endorse really awful behavior, but he's in this strange position where, well, the Game Awards is an industry award show that's supposed to be talking about, you know, the work that these developers have put together. So is, is taking a stance better or worse for those developers it's i wouldn't want to be in that position frankly because i think it's a hard moral decision to make in the position that he's in i hope that honestly we're going to watch the game awards closely and see what happens and we're going to talk about them obviously on the show but i really hope that the game awards give some room to the voices of the employees at activision blizzard to make a point and to make a stance because that is not a that to me is not a contradiction where you can clearly say um the goings on there are terrible and they should not be at all part of this celebration and i think it might be very well worth uh, very well worth looking into this advisory board and who's on there and whether that really is a good signal to give off it it strikes me i don't know if if you're aware of this but um you know the oscars uh people i think when when it comes to movie awards i think there's this idea that the oscars are somehow this uninvolved third party uh group that make these decisions it's not it's people in the academy it's people in the industry and most importantly the oscars are uh filmed for and shown on the abc network which is owned by disney and so there is this perennial question of well of course the disney movie is going to win or the marvel movies are going to win because that's where this thing is being hosted. It's not exactly impartial. And so I think in the same regard, having somebody from Activision on this board, it does kind of muddy the waters quite a bit. Yeah, but I mean, to be fair, there's Activision on this board. There's also, there's Nintendo, Sony, Xbox, and there many of these, you know, company presidents like Phil Spencer is also on this board. I don't know what this board does. Uh, the board, that's what they say on the website, is not involved in, you know, picking winners or the nominees, uh, but it's just an advisory board, like giving more of a general direction. And of course, it's important to bring these companies together for the Game Awards. That's the whole idea, right? It should. And the Game Awards, I think thus far, the Game Awards have done a good job of not being, not being like, let's say, partial regarding, let's say, a specific platform or a specific publisher, maybe except for the case of Kojima, because we know that Geoff Keighley, he, I think, has, he has the most influence and he's like good friends with Kojima and he, Kojima has been prominently featured uh, in uh, pretty much all of his uh, events. Well, and that, and that to me comes down more to, I mean, I would, I'm a big Kojima fan just as Jeff Keighley is. (laughs) And I think that that kind of comes down to, well, I think that I think that that's deserved for Kojima and Kojima Productions and you know the games that they put out. Um, but I will say, since you brought it up, um, 
this is why I, I'm not quite sure what will happen. Because if you remember a few years ago, when Kojima was unceremoniously ousted from Konami, Jeff Keighley made a pretty pointed statement at the Game Awards where he it was he was very diplomatic about it, but he definitely made it clear that he felt that it was um, uh, wrong for Kojima not to be there. And yeah. I, I do kind of think that Keeley has that kind of streak in him where he's going to say what he's going to say. And it just comes down to, I wonder how diplomatic he'll be about it at what point, or I, I don't know. It, so who knows what will happen if, if he'll make yeah. of it. I definitely wouldn't. I, I see that the, you know, the backlash against Joff Keeley that's going on on Twitter at the moment that I went through a little bit this morning when mm. I scrolled through my feed. I think it's a little bit premature because he didn't say that uh, he's not going to take sides. And I would not put it past Geoff Keighley and the Game Awards to put some kind of, to include some kind of uh, like brief but powerful statement, yeah. not necessarily against Activision Blizzard, but certainly for the rights of people who work at such companies. And that's what I truly hope for, that he's going to go in this direction. We don't know. We don't have any influence on that, but we're definitely going to talk about it and see what's going to happen next week. So hold your horses, people. For yeah. the time being, and let's judge the event after it happened, okay? <laughs> Number two. Yes, the Pokemon update. So um, a while ago, I mentioned that I picked up the, uh, um, it's Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. I always want to mix those up. Um, but Brilliant Diamond shining, and Shining Pearl. Shining Brilliant and Diamond Pearl. <laughs> Pokemon Diamond Pearl. <laughs> um, so last time I talked about it, I've played, I've played a bit more of it, and last time I talked about how, uh, well, actually, we both talked about how Pokemon is a funny kind of series because there are titles in it that just pass you by as you get older, and maybe you come back to them every couple of years to sort of see where Pokemon is. I know that happened to both of us with Sword and Shield, which we both enjoy. Yeah. Um, mm. And I said that I was intrigued by the Diamond and Pearl remake because I never got into those versions when they were out. It was kind of past my time a little bit. But Sword and Shield gripped me so much that I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a chance and see what's going on. And last time I talked about it, I hadn't made it too far, and I, I felt a little discouraged because there wasn't that kind of exciting grip that sword and shield had um but i have gotten to a point where they introduce the underground caverns which is a new addition to diamond and pearl where it's a massive underground maze with a lot of different rooms each of which are themed with different pokemon in it so it's very much like the wild area in sword and shield where you can run into basically anything and I think that what I've realized about uh, why that grips me so much is because when I grew up with Pokemon, the whole catchphrase was gotta catch them all. And the idea was that you, it's exciting to find a new one and catch it. And all it takes to get me on board with a Pokemon game is all of the Pokemon are here and who knows which one you'll find. Good luck. Have fun. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, that sounds yeah. like a bit of a, does it have like this roguelike element to it? No, as far as I can tell, they are, it is structured um, because mm. the way that it's, um, I haven't explored all of it just because I don't think all of the areas are open to me yet, but the way that it's structured is it does look like a Metroid map 
when you look at the minimap. Um, but each room is fixed and they all have like, uh, so this room is grass and water Pokemon, or this room is a, it's more of like a lava room. So you can run into fire Pokemon. So those do seem to be fixed points. Um, but I think that it changes depending on the time of day, what Pokemon will appear in there. And obviously there's many, many rooms that I haven't run into yet. So that kind of air of mystery is uh, enough to excite me to go back into it. Sounds like that is boiling down Pokemon to the essence of its formula. Yeah, and I, th well, that's why I, I liked uh, the Let's Go Pokemon games because it was very similar where they threw out the rules of which Pokemon appear where and when, and it was just who knows what you'll find. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's why people loved Pokemon Go too is because it was just... As as you say, the essence of Pokemon is I found this thing, I'm going to catch it, I'm going to feel really excited after I get it and add it to my Pokedex. Yeah, I'm going to add it to my Pokedex and then never use it again. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've also brought just a tiny impression, number three. That would be a virtual exhibition that actually has kind of made the rounds last week. For, it was, I think it's been out for two weeks now. This is the Kid Amnesia exhibition developed by Radiohead in cooperation with Epic Games. Hey, I'm honestly a big fan of the band Radiohead. Mm. I love them. They're amazing. They make like, <laughs> they're one of these bands that's, that have been around for like, I don't know how many years, for 20 years or something, for the better part of 20 Longer, years. Yeah. And they are still awesome. And they're still interesting with every record that they make. And they made this very strange ambient exhib exhibition that you can walk around in. It's a free download that you can, I think, on pretty much all platforms. I played it on PS5 and that was uh, just, it just looks gorgeous. And it's, uh, it, you go through abstract areas, like a bit of a forest, and then like huge buildings with all kinds of flickering lights on the walls. And every area is themed around one particular song by Radiohead. Oh, I love Just it. for example, I went into like an underground cellar that was themed after everything in its right place. Mm. Everything in its right... <laughs> yeah, never mind. And the song started playing... Uh, like in an instrumental remix fashion. So they've carefully designed all the areas to respond as to how where you're standing and what you're looking at to change the ambience of the sound. Wow. And then the lyrics appear on the wall and they just flow round and round these long corridors and you walk along as you read the lyrics. The lyrics are not sung, right? But just by having the right pace of walking, you read the lyrics and it all comes together in your head. What an incredible experience. I think that that excites me for, because Radiohead is fantastic, and that excites me for um, maybe opening the door to other bands with concept albums, trying something similar. Because I, I know that I've had the experience, I'm sure you too, you have too, Stefan, that certain like, you know, certain bands have albums that you think, I wish this was a video game <laughs> with everything that they're talking about in this story that they're putting together so that, that's really exciting yeah I, I love video games and i love music and when both things are brought together it can be so beautiful it says at the beginning though 
uh, it gives you a disclaimer and it says, this is not a game. Oh, Take your time. And it also says, uh, you are at the beginning. This means there is an end. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and then you just start walking around. Some doors unlock. Some do not unlock. Some will open. Some will never open. And so uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it gives you this air of mystery. And it's not, I, I'm just going to say, if you are sensitive to like flickering lights, then maybe don't play it in the dark. But if you can, if you can stomach that, if you don't have photosensitive epilepsy, then enjoy it in the dark and fully immerse yourself in just this flow. It is no, not much interact, interaction. You just walk around. But who doesn't want to, you know, like float into an, a gradually dissolving painting while listening to Radiohead's How to Disappear Completely? It's just, it's just awesome. Can I, can I just say awesome. that I, that I'm going to, I'm going to do that probably later today. Um, cause I, I just didn't know about it. We talked about it, but <laughs> that, that makes me wish that, um, this is kind of a tangent, but it makes me wish David Lynch would do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> A uh, David Lynch video game. An ambient that, I would definitely play. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that that thing is called, if you want to search for it on, on your favorite video game store, then you have to search for Kid Amnesia and uh, Kid Amnesia Exhibition. Then you will be able to find it. Enjoy. And thank you so very much for coming over to listen to our small little show. Well, hey, Merry Christmas to James from New York. You will receive your brand new PS5 very soon. Uh, Obviously, if you want to support us and get Studying Pixels Plus, then please visit studyingpixels.com. Who knows when we might give away something? Probably not any. We need to first recover our finances a little bit. But hey, if you want to support us, then we would be very grateful. And obviously, then we're going to try and see whether we can give something away at some point in the future. No promises yet. Of course, if you would like to give us an Apple Podcasts review, that would be fantastic. Give us a couple of these golden stars. They really help us not to get drowned out by the algorithm. Submit your thoughts and questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com. Find us on social media, and we're looking forward to talk to you again next week, then presumably about the Game Awards. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye now. <laughs>